talk about now the spiritual discipline of solitude. This is where desert life begins. This is where the way of holiness begins. I'm going to do my best to exponentially move through this. Uh, let me introduce the, the, originally the topics I had in mind. Brother Charlie, I might have you skip a lot of slides, but if you can find me the slide with the diagram on it, I want to show you kind of just a big picture of, of the focus. So I, I had originally four different topics that were in my heart to speak about. Now what I've discovered, obviously in a two-day conference, and I'll say two-day because Sunday's more typical church, even though we're still going to be thinking about the conference, but I, I can't cover all four of these and do major justice to any major, all four points. But what I wanted to show you was that all four of these things are part of a daily cycle of the Christian's walk with God. They're not individual separate things. When I go into solitude, when I'm seeking that time to be alone with God, you can count on spiritual warfare to happen. Okay, I'll bring that up in the next few minutes. But you're also going to find that there is the input of suffering into your, into your, uh, into your spiritual warfare, right? You, 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 when, you, when you are going through suffering in your life, there's going to be spiritual warfare involved, which is going to push you into solitude. I need to find time alone with God. You've got to practice separation in your life to be able to find the solitude. When you try to separate, you're going to have spiritual warfare come against you that says... You can't live like that. What will they think of you? You know. And by the way, when I say separation, because I won't have time to deal a lot with it, I'm not talking about how long your hair is. I'm not talking about whether you went to the movies. Those are all surface shallow issues that would be resolved if Christians would practice solitude. If we would practice time alone with God, we wouldn't even have debates and sermons on the length of hair and whether or not we should have went to the carnival. It would be taken care of. Because I would find myself more in love with the wilderness of God and less invested in the wilderness of the world. It would just happen. So there's hope for us yet. Now, these are the daily cycle. Mark chapter 1, you don't have to turn there per se, uh, but there's this long extended day in the life of Jesus. Now, it's an exceptionally busy day, but you'll see all of these things happening in Jesus' life that day. He starts, you know, he's going in to teach and he's preaching and he gets confronted in the synagogue by a spirit then he's healing he's doing spiritual warfare then he wakes up the next morning the bible says very early he goes off into the solitary place to pray you see all those things happen in his life and all of them will happen in our life as a people who are seeking the way of holiness so we need to be aware of each of these things now here's the questions that i have for you do i want i have to say do i want more of god in my life do i want to be useful to others as a spiritual man or woman then I've got to prepare myself in all of these ways with all of these things. Because if we say, yes, we've got to learn these practices, the power of God on my life will not come, again, because I've been at a big meeting or I've heard a big preacher. I've, I've got to reverse the order of that. The groups, our big groups, as I said, suffer because the individuals haven't spent that time in a true walk with God. Only by solitude is the community strengthened. So... Let me put an image in your mind. If I give you nothing else on the lesson of solitude, I want to give you this. Brother Charlie, hold on just a second. Don't push the slide yet. But is the next slide a picture of a couple of cute individuals? Okay, stand by. No, it's not me and my wife. But it could be. So all this week, as I have been recovering from my COVID attack, I've been going out in the mornings, and I wanted to practice this thing of solitude with the Lord. 
And every morning this week, I've been noticing that there's a turtle in my yard. Now, I've seen the turtle before in days gone by. But this turtle, I would notice, he would be just, there's, in the middle of the yard, there's a clump of some trees right there that's got some old logs that are cut up, some rocks and some different, it's supposed to be probably stuff that was planted there years ago, but it just looks like weeds. And I guess the turtle lives there, and he'd be walking off this way toward the far wood line. The next morning, I'd notice he'd be walking off that way toward the far wood line. And the next morning, I noticed he was walking off this way toward the far wood line, and I began to wonder, what does a turtle do during the day? Well, yesterday morning I was sitting out there and I, first, I noticed for the first time, Brother Charlie, if you'll hit the picture, that there was actually two of them. Two of those little box turtles because I don't know how I didn't see it before, but I just noticed it yesterday morning. One was going this way and then I saw another one going that way. They were both coming from the same place. And I thought, wait, that's it. The turtle is the picture of the Christian in solitude he is the Christian solitary he is the Christian as the old guy said religion he's the Christian religious was the term that Thomas Akempis likes to use they lived in community but early in the morning they would wander off to be alone and I looked at that turtle and I said that turtle is the picture because think about the turtle here every morning they're going in their opposite directions there's two of them and they'll go do what they do, and they come back together, and they have their life together, whatever that looks like among turtles. But I thought they, they live in solitude. You rarely see two turtles together. They live in solitude. They're slow creatures, but they're steady. And as I watched them, I, you know, people talk about how slow a turtle is, but I watched the turtle, and I, I would watch him a little while, and I would look down or look away, and I'd look back, and I'd have to find him again. They may be slow, but they get where they're going. And then I noticed this about them too. They carry their shell with them. And you know when things get bad for a turtle, you know what he does? He goes inside that shell. And the old, mon the, the old monks in the monastery, they called their rooms their cells, C-E-L-L. -L. That was the term they used for it. And that was the place where they would leave the community and leave their labors and they would go to be alone with God. And I thought that turtle carries his shale or sail with him everywhere he goes and that's the way we should be we learn to practice solitude by maybe our early mornings of going away and being with God but when we develop this in our life we carry it with us everywhere no matter where we are we're able to get along with God even in the crowd and when we know when we're doing that we know we're getting somewhere with this so Matthew 15 or Mark 15 it says in verse 37 and 38 Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. This way we're talking about, that way was opened when Jesus died on the cross. He opened the way. And I like what A.W. Tozier says in the pursuit of God. God wills that we should push into his presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known as a conscience, a conscious experience. It's more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. Life with God. And this is what solitude teaches us and invites us into. I don't have time to, to go over all of this, but I want to just hit the highlights. As I was studying again on this last night, I was looking at uh, a book that I have called Desert Fathers and Mothers, Sayings of Wisdom, written by a lady named Chris, Christina Paintner. 
And uh, she has a collection of a lot of the Desert Father stories from those early centuries. But what I was uh, looking at is, is in there she references David Keller in a book called Oasis of Freedom. And he described Christian monasticism as a three-part movement that happens. And it happens in this particular order. And, and I think it will resonate with us. He uses uh, Greek words to describe this. The first one is oikomene, but it really means this. It means inner awareness. So the first movement of this move to solitude is this inner awareness. There is something inside of me that says, I need more. I'm not satisfied with the status quo. Inner awareness that the secular world is a distraction from deep personal longing and from a search for God and a distraction from my commitment to live out gospel values. So it's this awakening inside a person that says, what's wrong with me? I don't fit here. I don't, why am I? I remember experiencing that early in my Christian life. You know, and I didn't want to be the guy that was a jerk to other people, but I didn't know how to handle it because I didn't understand the things that we're talking about right now. The second movement is called anachoresis. Anachoresis. You know the word ana means uh, no or without, but what this word stands for is a physical separation. And for so many of the, you know, these ancient monastic Christians, this was their physical separation from society, from the values and the normal patterns and pursuits that everybody was doing, even in their churches. But they said, I got to get away from that in order to withdraw and get to a desert, get to a place where I can figure out what's going on inside of me. Now, I want to give you a Bible example of this. Paul. Or Saul, Saul, as he was known at the time, after Saul was converted to Christ, remember he tells us in Galatians that he went away. Now initially he spent time around the brethren, but eventually this inner awareness was awoken in him, and he went and physically separated himself, and he went uh, to you know uh, out into the the desert place so he could be with God and learn. Of course, John the Baptist is one, you know. Moses is one that this was going on with. Anybody else think of one, or did I steal all of them? So there's that. And then the third movement is the word eremos, which is the Greek word for desert, and it, it just it is the word that means the desert. So all this leads to that. Now, the, the key to the desert is, is, is the desert is where this experience. Now, it can be experienced as an, as an internal event, like what's going on inside of me, that's where it should be. But it also can be an external location. But it's the place of separation from the world in order to completely dedicate to and depend on God. So we might call this a, a detachment from the world. Okay, That's what you're, that's what you're working at. Let me, uh, let me now just tell you in the essence of solitude... I think it might be worth, I'm trying to figure out how to use my time. I think it might be worth sharing this with you too. 
So you remember hashtag monk life? I coined that phrase a long time ago, right? I haven't got any coin for it yet, but anyway. So what I, what I have seen in the reading and, and, and looking at not only these people in history, but the Bible characters of history as well, is that there were five common traits among these people that would go into the desert. I'm just going to list these real quick. When they would go off, so we're talking about they've reached this point here. When they would leave, when they would depart. For us, we're not going anywhere. We're not leaving to go live inside a, a mountain fortress somewhere or, or out in the desert in tents. But when we reach this point where we want to live like this, these men and women all had these things in common. Number one, they sought a spiritual elder to learn from. They sought an elder to learn from. That was a key thing for them. They didn't go off just to figure it all off by themselves. They didn't become, you know, uh, mavericks. They knew they needed someone to teach them and to learn from. Secondly, they committed themselves to continual prayer. This was life for them. Prayer became life. It wasn't just a prayer life. It was a life of prayer. Thirdly, what they were doing, they were seeking to free their mind from evil thoughts. And that was a common thing for them. And, and when you think about that, that's not just, um, just thinking like seeing pictures of immorality in your head. Like the thoughts, we're talking the spiritual warfare stuff here. The thoughts about what was happening in their life, what, who had done what to them, and their feelings toward them, and all this stuff that can just control our inner man if we don't get it under control. We don't submit it to God's control. Number four, they sought to keep their lives simple so they could focus on God. Keep their lives simple so they could focus on God. Remember last year in the conference we talked about simplicity and how important it is to live a simplistic life. The more we can minimalize the junk, the physical, the emotional, the relational junk in our life, the more we can focus on God. And then the fifth thing that, that I believe was a key to them was they, they really worked hard at memorizing Scripture. Now, that was particularly important for them because back in the days when everybody didn't have multiple copies of Bibles just lying around, they couldn't just always go grab a copy. So when they had a Bible in front of them, they would learn it, and they would commit to memory the Scripture. And the belief was, is what they, or what they wanted was, they wanted to have a treasure of truth in their heart that the Holy Spirit could then work from. You know, as they went through their day, as they faced the encounters, the battles, as they, someone came to them seeking counsel, they had something to draw from. And I think that's, those are things that solitude offers to us. So, uh, basically, in, there's, there's three aspects of, of this. There's the entering into solitude, okay? The abiding with solitude and the returning from solitude. Now, I'm going to close by just hitting those very quickly, just running. Entering into solitude. Jesus, in Mark 1.35, in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. This was not just something that he did once in a while. This was a common practice for Jesus. I'm convinced that one of the greatest enemies of a true spiritual life is activity. And my heart just feels like it just, like a can when you're crushed. There's a part of me that just feels like, like that inside when I say it out loud because I know I'm guilty. We just have too much going on. 
We're too busy. We're too distracted. We're too in love with it because it's far easier to live there in all of the goings on than it is to live the opposite way that we're describing here this morning. There's always more to do. There's dishes that need to be washed. The yard needs to be mowed. The TV needs to be watched. Somebody's got to do it. And even legitimate things become our way to avoid what we ought to be doing and need to be doing. And our life becomes that insurmountable pile of activities. The purpose of solitude, again, is to detach us from that. So we enter into solitude to leave that stuff behind. By the way, the word for distraction is a Latin word that literally means, if you break down distract, it means to pull apart. This is where our word distraction comes from. When we are distracted, it is because our heart, our soul, is being pulled in too many different directions. And we can't focus on what matters the most. So it's learning how to leave those distractions behind and get along with God. Because Paul said to Timothy, he's saying to his, his, his man that is to pastor and that he's training and teaching, 2 Timothy 2, 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So what consumes our day? I'll tell you what consumes most of our day. It's the things and the people and the systems in which we find the most affirmation the most comfort, the most identity. Those are the things we will fill our day with. So again, we're either living in God or we're living in the world. At any given moment, you are in God or you are in the world. And you're drawing your affirmation and your identity and your purpose from one or the other. Now only God offers you the truth. But the world is so loud and so prevalent and so bright that it gets our attention a lot. So we need to integrate into the life of Jesus and disintegrate from the life of society many times. So we go to a place, we enter into solitude because it's a place where my soul can be real and be surrounded by the real. And, and as we enter into solitude, just thinking about that, it is obviously easier outside and in nature to get away from the stuff that commonly distracts us. But it's just finding that place, and that's something to think about. Where's that place for you in your life where you can go and be? Now let me briefly say something about abiding in solitude. Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is what we're doing in solitude. We're seeking the kingdom of God. I am staying in that place. My purpose there is to detach my soul from the false world and fully connect to the kingdom of God. And abiding there means staying there until my heart comes alive with an awareness that, that God is real and that I am in him and it's more than an intellectual thing. So I've got to allow myself to enough time and space to enter into solitude that I can stay there and not be rushed until that becomes a reality. And every experience won't be the same. And sometimes God will come to you in a big way, and sometimes God will come to you in a way that your heart just feels like it's going to burst. And sometimes you will walk away from solitude by faith, just knowing that God knows you were there and that fruit will come out of it even though nothing's swirling on the inside. And that's okay. But stay there until you have something to anchor your heart in. 
Now, I, I just want to say this. Solitude is a place of transformation. You go there for your soul to be converted. And I'll, I'll close that thought with the, the, the returning from solitude. But I want to point out, solitude is not simply privacy. I just need to get somewhere. I need y'all to give me 15 minutes. Just leave me alone, okay? Solitude is not just privacy. Solitude is not just your escape from everybody. I need to get alone for a little while. I need to get a bath. I, you know, that's not solitude. Those are helpful things and good things, and we all need those things too. But solitude is not that. Solitude is not just my chance to be in my favorite chair or get a nap. Those are good, but they're not the discipline of solitude. Solitude is not the same thing as your devotions and study time. And I want to make that distinction. Solitude is what should feed your devotions and study time. Solitude, if I can say it simply, is this. You, God, period. When you go into solitude, you take nothing with you. You don't take books, you don't take music, you don't take your phone, you don't take the news of the day, you don't take your to-do list, you don't take the... You're going to walk in there and there's going to be all kinds of stuff in your mind. As Henry Nowen says, when you go into solitude, that's when all those thoughts and all those ideas will start coming at you. He said, my mind feels like, my brain is like uh, monkeys in a banana tree. Just jumping all over the place. And you have to overcome that. So don't bring a distraction there because, see, that's the easy thing to do. When you saw, yeah, this ain't working. Let me get this, you know. Don't do that. You're staying there quietly. At best, you take two things into your solitude. One, you take your Bible because you might need it. And I'll explain that. You might need it. You're going to use it eventually, but for solitude, you and God. Secondly, you would take your journal because you're going to want to capture something before it's over. Okay? So, so that's solitude. Let me just uh, say that returning from solitude is, is seen in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 6. Uh, I want to read this verse. Jesus, this is when he called the disciples and he said, come apart and rest a while. They were, they'd been busy, they'd been working. And it says in verse 34 after that, when Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them and he began to teach them. And so what I want to say to that is this. What I read in Mark 6, Jesus calls those disciples. They went into that because they had a need. They go into solitude because they have a need. They need to rest, they need to refocus. But when they come out of solitude, they have a new vision. It says when Jesus came out, he saw much people and was moved with compassion. If our solitude does not produce something in us like that, then it didn't work very well. Solitude molds self... This is Henry Nouwen. Solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, caring, forgiving persons who are so deeply convinced of their own great sinfulness and so fully aware of God's even greater mercy that their life itself becomes ministry. I love this story from the Desert Fathers. I'm quoting it kind of from the hip, shooting from the hip, but it says something about this. There was a, one of the, the fathers, I don't remember his name, but there were three men that came to visit him on a regular basis. And they would ask questions. The first two would always ask him many questions, and he would answer them, but the third man would never ask anything. And one day, this Desert Father asked the, uh, the third man, he said, your two brothers, they ask questions every time they come. You never ask me anything. Why? He said, Father, just being in your presence is ministry enough. And I think if we get to where our life is so full of God that people just being around us feel like they've been ministered to, we've, we've got somewhere. We've got somewhere. So 
Let's, uh, let's take our journals out again. See, Brother Charlie, if you can find practical exercise for session one. Now you're going to have a little more time for this one, and then we're going to take a break after this, okay? So I'll, I'll let you know for break time. But basically, for this, you're going to take your journal, and we're talking about solitude. As you look back over your notes, reflect on what you've heard, begin to think of specific ways that you can practice solitude in your day, mornings or otherwise. Where and when could you find this place? What changes in your routine could be made to ensure that you can set aside time and space to be with God? Are there specific habits or practices that are hindering your practice of solitude that you need to change or eliminate in your life? And as you sit quietly and reflect on the session, what words, thoughts, or ideas or prayers come in your heart? Write those in your journal, okay? What is God asking of you? And maybe what do you need to ask of God?